listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. The church is located at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. Thank you for joining us today as Dr. Pollock opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Thank you for listening to the ministry of Let the Bible Speak. Today we're going to break into our studies in 1 Timothy and broadcast a message that was preached at a church prayer meeting. The message is on the subject of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was that structure that God provided for the people of God as they journeyed in the wilderness. They've made their way from Egypt. They've been redeemed through the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. And as they make their way to the promised land, God has provided the tabernacle as a place where he will meet with his people, where they can enjoy communion with God, and indeed where they can learn the lessons regarding gospel redemption. Everything in the tabernacle points to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one mediator between God and man. Today's message actually deals with those items that are not in the tabernacle. We have suggestions in the Word of God as to the significance of certain things that the tabernacle did not have. And in these things we also will see the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. The Bible is a unified book. From start to finish it points us to salvation that is by God's grace alone, that is found in Christ alone, and that is received by faith alone. It is my desire that today's message will be an encouragement to all of your hearts. And as we come to hear the word of God, let me read to you some words found in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews gives us uh, much of the details regarding the fulfillment of the tabernacle types and shadows. And in Hebrews chapter 10 and the verse number 11, it says this, And every priest... Speaking of the Old Testament priests, and every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. So let's uh, pray together before we come to the Word of God today. We'll seek the face of God, asking again for His blessing to be upon His Word. Eternal God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for all of the Bible, the Old Testament types and shadows. We thank You for the tabernacle. We thank You for the, the furniture pieces, the brazen altar that speaks of atonement, the laver that speaks of our sanctification in Christ. We thank you for the altar of incense and the showbread and the candlestick, these items that speak of our communion with God. We thank you for the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat that speaks of Christ, our great High Priest, he who secured redemption for us. And as we come to think about the tabernacle today, may our hearts be warmed in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Tonight, I want to give attention to those things that are not mentioned at all. I want us to think about the things that the tabernacle does not have. Now, before you're worried that I'm entering into some sort of vain speculation, 
There are clues in the Word of God that point us in the direction of those things that are absent in the tabernacle. It's true that much can be said by what is not said. You think of the seasoned politician and how often do you come away thinking, it wasn't what he said, it's what he didn't say. And there can be a lot inferred by what is not said. Now, when it comes to the Lord and the Scriptures, we need to be very, very careful in this area. God has ultimately revealed Himself in what He has said, not in what He has not said. And so God is clear. He has given us very clear, true revelation in all things, and therefore we must be very careful when we draw inferences out of those things that are absent in the Word of God. When God does not say something, that is because He has chosen not to reveal it. But there are truths revealed in the Scriptures that do lead us to consider the absence of certain structures in the tabernacle. And so when you do a uh, study of the tabernacle, you look at the words and how it's used and various things, well, there are things that come to light regarding these absent structures of the tabernacle. And so with care and with the hope of devotionally helping us and encouraging us, uh, let us note three things the tabernacle did not have. First of all, the tabernacle, it did not have a material floor. The tabernacle did not have a material floor. The structures that we have considered, uh, they respected the erection of the tent-like structure. And the boards and the pillars, they were placed in certain sockets. The boards and the bars and the silver sockets and the front pillars placed on the sockets of brass. Yet the bare desert floor forms the floor of the tabernacle. Now, the lack of floor does not imply that none was available or could have been instructed. In fact, when you come to the temple later on, the construction of the temple, there's information in 1 Kings 6 that the floor was made of boards of cedar and planks of fir. So there was instruction given later on regarding the construction of a floor. The tabernacle floor is mentioned just once. And that mention helps us to understand the significance of the lack of floor and the dust that made the tabernacle floor. So turn back, please, to Numbers chapter 5. Numbers chapter 5. And Numbers 5, you have this really intriguing form of judicial trial. It is the detail regarding the trial of jealousy. You have the, if you like, a summary of it over in verse number 29 at the end of the chapter. This is the law of jealousies. When a wife goeth astray to another instead of her husband and is defiled, or when the spirit of jealousy cometh upon him, and he be jealous over his wife and shall set the woman before the Lord, and the priest shall execute upon her all this law. So there is this uh, situation that might arise in a marriage you have suspicion concerning the moral conduct of a wife. No proof can be found. You go back to, again, the verse number 11 and following, you have the beginning of the matter. And there is no evidence that can be found. There is no proof regarding her, uh, her iniquity or lack thereof, her guilt or innocence. And so there was this ceremony that involved the taking of waters known as the waters of jealousy. And there was a ceremony involved. There was a test given. 
Again, just we all understand this very clearly that marriage must be based upon trust. Um, when there's a breaking in trust in the marriage, well, then there was this procedure given by God that trust could be restored. That was the purpose. And the man had some reason for jealousy, and therefore his wife was brought with an offering. But there was a ceremony, and she had to, she had to give an oath. And the test was to prove the wife's integrity. No woman, if she was guilty before God, would, uh, would say the amen of verse number 22. Well, verse 21 says, Then the priest shall charge the woman with an oath of cursing, and the priest shall say unto the woman, The Lord make thee a curse and an oath among thy people, when the Lord doth make thy thigh to rot and thy belly to swell, and this water that causeth the curse shall go into thy bowels to make thy belly to swell and thy thigh to rot, and the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. She was to take this water as a test, and if she was innocent, no harm would come of her. But if she had sworn the oath falsely and had consumed the water, then her thigh would swell and her belly, or her thigh would rot and her belly would swell. It was a test in the institution of God. But for our purposes, what you see is the constituents of this water that is given to us in verse number 17. And the priest shall take holy water in an earthen vessel, and of the dust that is in the floor of the tabernacle, the priest shall take and put it into the water. So here's some significance regarding the dust of the floor of the tabernacle put into this water. Whereby, if this woman was guilty, the consumption of this dusty water would expose her sin, and she would bear the consequence of her sin under the very curse of God. And of course, this ties very well with the concept of ground and dust that takes us back to the garden, where God pronounces judgment upon Adam, cursed is the ground for thy sake. Creation under the curse of the fall. Romans 8, creation groaning under the bondage of corruption. And so my suggestion to you in light of these inferences is that the dust of the tabernacle floor, the dust of the earth upon which the tabernacle was constructed, that floor, that dust, is emblematic of this world and signifies this world as being under the curse of God. There's a couple of things that arise in light of this. Principles that we are familiar with, but the reminders I trust will do us good. Our great high priest executes the work of atonement upon the dust of this ground. He comes as our high priest and sets his feet upon this earth that he would execute the work of redemption on our behalf. Christ came into this world a world marred by sin, to work out our redemption. The holiest place speaks of Christ going through the veil with his blood, entering heaven as our high priest, presenting the merits and the work, his work for us. We see that clearly taught in Hebrews. But the work of the high priest presented and prayed over in heaven is a work that was performed in the dust of this earth. Oh, the text could be multiplied. John 16, verse 28, I came forth from the Father and am come into the world. Or John 17, verse 4, in the high priestly prayer, I have glorified thee on the earth. 
There's significance here in the high priest's work as he glorifies the Father on the earth, as he again comes into the world by miraculous birth, in his life, in his death, in his burial, and his resurrection, bearing our curse as our second Adam, removing the curse of the fall. Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy chapter 1, came into the world to save sinners. May we never lose sight of the glorious truth of the Incarnation. It was not possible in the purpose of God for God to save humanity without Christ's feet touching this earth. He had to have human feet. And with human feet, he had to have the dust of the ground upon his feet that he came as our curse bearer, as our sin-bearing sacrifice, that as our high priest, he would indeed fulfill all the types and the shadows and secure redemption on our behalf. Oh, the world, of course, has lost sight of the glory of the majesty of the incarnate Son of God, but may we never lose sight of the miracle of the virgin birth. He humbled himself, taking the form of a servant. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh, that as our, our human high priest, taken from among men, Hebrews chapter 5, he would indeed be our Redeemer. Simple truths. But it's worth reminding us when we see the high priest once a year entering on the day of atonement, he did so upon the dust of the ground. The second point in the, under this consideration of the floor that is worth considering is that the worship of God occurs in a cursed world. God has ordained worship to occur on this earth. The glorious, sinless worship of heaven can be represented here on earth. Consider the priest. Just the son of Aaron and their responsibilities to go into the holy place to offer, again, incense upon the altar to take the showbread, their task of communion with God. Again, they also, they engage in communion with God with their feet upon the earth. You think of the pictures that we have in the New Testament, Philippians, the church there, they're, they're living, they're shining as lights among a crooked and perverse generation. They're worshiping God in the midst of a fallen world. Or you turn to turn to Ephesians chapter five, please. Turn over to Ephesians chapter five and see. Just see the principles here. Ephesians five. We have some tremendous content regarding the matter of spiritual living, worshiping God in the things, or worshiping God in this world. And verse number nineteen, we have the reference, explicit reference to public worship, singing to yourselves and psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. And there to do that, if you look back to verse number sixteen, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Evil days is not a cause for us to stop worshiping. We're on this earth, in the dust of this earth, to worship God on this earth as He has ordained. That is His sovereign purpose. It's interesting if you turn over to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. You have the recognition that we are not yet in heaven. Verse number 14, For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. And then you have verse 15, By him therefore let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. 
That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. There's a recognition we're not in heaven yet. But yet we can still worship God on earth. It's a tremendous privilege. In the midst of sin, in the context of our own sin, we have still the right and the privilege of worshiping our triune God. Never let the world around us be an excuse for less than wholehearted worship of our God. God has ordained worship on this earth by His Spirit in the midst of a cursed world. Sometimes we get so overwhelmed by the sin around us that it's a a suffocating experience in terms of our worship of God. It is the will of God that we worship in this fallen world. You know, in that regard, you can't help your mind going forward to the fulfillment of the tabernacle types in the new heavens and the new earth, whereby on resurrection day when the universe, this world is renewed and full, we will walk on a renewed earth worshiping our God. With feet, we'll walk on a new heavens and a new earth. We're in dwelleth righteousness. That's pointed forward here. The ultimate is pointed forward to in the type of the tabernacle. Creation will be delivered from the bondage of corruption unto the glorious liberty of the children of God. So, the tabernacle doesn't have a material floor. And the second thing the tabernacle did not have, the tabernacle did not have a chair. Now, this is clearly pointed to, of course, again in Hebrews chapter 10. We read those verses, Hebrews chapter 10. And the priests, of course, according to Deuteronomy 18, the priests, they were chosen off the Lord out of the tribes to stand, to minister in the name of the Lord. That was the purpose of the priestly office. They were not to sit as they served the Lord. And so you have here in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11, And every high priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices. And then verse number 12, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. There was nowhere to sit in the tabernacle signifying the temporary nature of the Levite service, recognizing again what we saw earlier on in that chapter, that it is not possible for the blood of bulls and of goats to take away sins, that they could not cease the sacrifices because the sacrifices could not deal with the conscience of sins. Temporary, pointing forward to the coming Christ. And when our high priest sits All those old types and ceremonies are fulfilled and they're abolished. And they're abolished forevermore. Christ's work is finished and accepted. Hence all the sinner needs is found in him and in him alone. And so in the absence of a chair, the tabernacle is is not so uh, much a type, but we see the fulfillment of the type in the sitting of Christ at the right hand of God. All the shadows of the tabernacle are fulfilled when he sits. Propitiation, reconciliation, redemption, all those things that we see in the tabernacle, they are all completed and fulfilled as Christ sits down at the right hand of God. There can be no return to Judaism, no return to rituals, no return to religious ceremonies whereby somebody presumes they can get right with God Romanism stinks of such procedures and such rituals. 
Christ, one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, whereby he secures the promise of the new covenant. You have that on down through chapter 10 of Hebrews. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them on their sins and iniquities. Will I remember no more? He has taken away the first that he may establish the second. Those promises are certain now. We can go to people in the streets. We can pray for sinners, and we can pray because Christ sat down. Therefore, sins can be forgiven. That's our great confidence. That's our great hope. That's our personal assurance. The promise of the covenant has been secured. Therefore, we can hold on to it. Christ has done all that was required to secure those promises. Hence, Hebrews 10, verse number 35, we are told, Cast not away, therefore, your confidence with a great recompense of reward. You know, there are some, even in the present churches, who, who hold on to Christ, but as time goes on, they get some notion that Christ is not enough, and they've got to perform all of these other things. And if they do all that, then they'll get to glory. No, Christ is enough at the start. Christ is enough at the middle. And Christ will be enough for all eternity for the child of God. Amen. Nothing else required whereby a sinner can be right with God. So this tabernacle, it did not have a material floor. It did not have a chair. And thirdly and finally, it did not have a locked door. It did not have a locked door. The contents of the tabernacle in light of the metals that were used were of tremendous value, tremendously precious. And yet no door was closed. Now, the front veil, we know, acted as a door. We read of that in Exodus chapter 26. Between the court and the holy place, there was a veil that is serving as a door. That's true. Signifying that worship was... The privilege of the prepared and the purified priest, but such a veil was not a door. Now, before you jump to the conclusion that these doors were not yet invented, that does not bear any weight in Scripture. You think of what happened in Sodom when Lot is in Sodom and the angels go to Sodom. Lot went out at the door unto them and shut the door after him. But the men put forth their hand and pulled Lot into the house to them and shut to the door. So it's possible to construct a, a material structure in such a way that there could be a locked door. But all day and all night, the tabernacle stands open. No bolts, no bars obstruct the way in. It seems to invite approach. Henry Law, in his work, dealing with some of the types and the shadows, he says this, "'Such is the Savior with his outstretched arms.'" calling poor sinners to his very heart. The lips of ever-willing love are ever open. Will you perish? Come to me. Listen to that language. The lips of ever-willing love are always open. What comfort, what assurance there is as we labor in the Lord's name on this earth. The doors are not closed. Oh, we're to strive to enter. The Lord of the house at a time will come and shut the door. But at the present time, the door is open. There are no bolts and bars. And sinners can come to Christ. For all that the Father giveth shall come to Christ. They're invited to come by Christ himself. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. And so we all are, as those who have come to Christ, we're told to 
come boldly unto the throne of grace. Unobstructed access to the presence of God. No secret keys. Just simply enter through Christ. The worship of God is open to all who are prepared and purified priests of God. Those whose sins are forgiven, whose hands are washed, they enter in and they avail themselves of the invitation to come. If you keep out of God's presence, it is not because God has barred the way. The way is open for you. Yes, for sinners, the way is open for them to come and be reconciled to God. But for us as believers, the way is open for us, access into the presence of God. And we've, we've seen that again in recent times. Every part of the tabernacle and those items that are absent speak gospel truths to our soul. I go back again to the glorious truths of the Reformation the souls of the Reformation, salvation is by grace alone and Christ alone through faith alone. Here we see in these absent items, salvation is by grace alone because in grace God brought his truth onto a fallen world. And he said, there I will meet with you. As the high priest secures atonement, God meets in grace. The ground is cursed. God must come down, for we cannot go to God unless he comes down to us. Grace alone, in Christ alone, the priest of God comes. And he fulfills all the types and shadows whereby he then sits down, his work complete and finished. Grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone. For having the offer of the tabernacle, the offer of God's presence will not avail unless we enter into that presence. And that we do by faith, leaving aside our sin, we come into the presence of God and we enjoy his presence. The unity of the Bible is wonderful. And in all things we see these truths, they resonate in every page. Salvation by grace alone, Christ alone, through faith alone. Denying these things is to deny the entire Bible. For from Genesis to Revelation, it speaks these truths to your souls. We are saved by grace alone and Christ alone through faith alone. To God be the glory alone. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania, at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. We preach Christ crucified.